0: Hi, I'm Nell McShane-Wolfhart. I've spent over a decade helping people make big choices and improve their lives in the process. In my new Audible original, The Decision Coach, you'll get a front row seat to real-time decision-making. I coach people through the toughest choices they're facing, showing them how to get unstuck and move forward. Each session is filled with plenty of actionable, useful tips to help you get better at making decisions in your own life. Go to audible.com forward slash decisions to binge all six episodes and find more inspiring listens by signing up for a free trial. Again, that's audible.com forward slash decisions. Have you ever struggled with a big decision? One of those this could change my whole life decisions, where the stakes are sky high? Trick question. I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. We've all gotten stuck on big choices at some point in our lives. My name is Nell McShane Wolfhart, and I help people make decisions like that every day.
1: The biggest risk I've taken so far was quitting my job, like, off the whim.
0: I dropped out of college, breaking up with my ex. Picking what college to go to
2: from, like, high school. I once drove state to state with substances that weren't needed, and I was risking my freedom to do so.
0: About 10 years ago, I invented a job. Decision coach. It's exactly what it sounds like. I help people make big decisions. Now, you might be asking why I'm qualified to do that, and it's a good question. I'm not a therapist or a behavioral scientist. But I have always been very, very good at helping other people make decisions. I have a fixer brain, and that comes with the ability to cut straight to the heart of an issue. Over the years, I've helped hundreds and hundreds of clients decide whether to quit their job, move to a new place, get married, get divorced, have kids, and pretty much anything else you can think of. I've coached Olympic athletes, hedge fund managers, stay-at-home moms, neuroscientists, And it turns out that weighing your big choices with a total stranger can really help. I'm going to go back to the first word that we used. It feels liberating. On each episode of The Decision Coach, you'll hear me coach people who are really, truly stuck. We'll get out of indecision and into action. We have all
2: this experience of all the things that can go wrong. And I think sometimes that really does
0: leave us feeling stuck. You'll see how I break down the decision-making process to its most important elements, and you'll learn how to identify the things that really matter so you can make better choices.
1: It's a risk. It's a risk. Do you follow your heart or your head? Is the mind going to win on this one, or is my heart going to win on this one?
0: Today, I'm talking to Eric.
1: As a child, I was told I was a bit of a show-off and a bit of a troublemaker.
0: Eric lives in Australia, and he's in his mid-40s. His dream is to be a full-time Hollywood actor. But he made some choices over the past few years that radically changed his life, and not in a good way. He was still recovering from that when something very unexpected happened.
1: And then all of a sudden I punched my number into the portal, the website portal, and it said, you've been chosen for further progression in the consideration for a green card lottery. And I was just like, well, my heart skipped.
0: Eric won the green card lottery.
1: You know, when you've had at least five to ten years of sorry, you haven't been selected, you don't expect much. And this time, when it gave me a different response, I just sort of was in shock.
0: He was one of the few lucky applicants to secure what some call a golden ticket, permission to live and work in the United States. To give you an idea of his chances, in 2021, more than 11 million people entered the lottery. Only around 50,000 won. That's a half of a percent. But due to some dubious choices, Eric's finances are kind of a mess. So if Eric wants to actually use that green card and move to L.A., he'll be starting from scratch. Here's the thing, though. This isn't his first time rolling the dice on a dream that's anything but guaranteed.
1: Do I sell my entire life savings to go pursue the risky dream of a career in Hollywood as an actor, or do I let my green card lapse, keep my money, and pursue my life in Australia?
0: So this is the opposite of a straightforward choice. It's a Gordian knot made up of all these interconnected threads money, livelihood, happiness, success, physical location, second chances, and one in a million opportunities. And it makes us ask the question Does a lifetime dream really last a lifetime? Today, I'm going to help Eric make a decision. One of the first things I do when I'm beginning to work with a client is assess their general comfort level. With risk.
1: Look, I think it comes from my parents. They're business people. They've always been entrepreneurial. And in order to be good in business, you have to take some sort of element of risk.
0: Playing it safe, sitting around and waiting for something to happen, this is not Eric's M.O. As he shared, he comes from entrepreneurs, people who have a higher tolerance for the unknown than most. So when Eric first decided he wanted to pursue acting in Australia... He took decisive action. He trained with the best, took countless classes, and made some pretty audacious moves.
1: I actually got dressed up as a courier person and I went to Fox Studios pretending I was delivering a um, a package when I was just really trying to get my video into the production team at Fox Studios. And then next thing you know, I'm driving Heath Ledger around on set and I'm watching him work and I'm just like... I love this industry, and I could live on set, literally. And so I just put my, you know, focus of my life into the world of acting.
0: So back in 2017, he took his life savings, moved to L.A., and started hustling for acting gigs. And it began to pay off.
1: Wisteria Lane on the back lot of Universal Studios with Steer Elena's in the Desperate Housewives Street mm-hmm. and I shot a, a, a nice commercial there that got garnered 13 million views on YouTube in the first three months and I was pinching myself I'm working on the Universal Studios back lot here and I've got a commercial and you know it was paying rollovers year after year and I was doing meetings at CBS NBC HBO.
0: Eric says his Hollywood journey led to a major studio contract worth $25,000. Sure, there were ups and downs along the way, and he spent a lot of his savings. But Eric had never been closer to realizing his dream. 99% of actors out there would love to have been having the meetings you were having to be doing the work that you were doing. Like, I understand that it wasn't consistent, but to me, What you were describing did not sound like something full of obstacles. It sounded like a time period full of successes.
1: You want to be on set eight to ten hours a day and really, really rock and rolling. And and I was rock and rolling just without the financial success and without the actual long-term work.
0: Then Eric's visa ran out. And thanks to a combination of the government shutdown and a looming pandemic... He couldn't get it renewed. He was forced to return to Sydney and put his Hollywood dream on pause. And then COVID-19 almost stomped it out of existence.
1: Oh, it felt like a death, (laughs) to be honest. It felt like a death to my career. It was like, oh no, I can't get a renewal of my visa. I can't go back. The lockdown has happened and then I just couldn't see a way back.
0: The next thing I try to learn from a client is... What's the actual source of conflict? In other words, what's causing that stuckness? Sometimes the answer is obvious, and sometimes it's more vague. In Eric's case, once he left Hollywood to come back to Australia, everything felt like a letdown, and the industry was slow to recover from the pandemic. So he found a new passion and a new way to make money. Crypto. I think we have to we have to agree that it is that it is a risky place to have your money, at least at the moment, right?
1: No, it's the, what are you talking about? It's the safest thing. You know, going up one day 60% and then losing it all the next day? Of course, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God, I thought you were serious for
1: a second. I was having like a
0: small heart attack over here. <laughs> no,
1: it is It is the riskiest.
0: It all began with the stock market crash at the outset of the pandemic.
1: There was this famous guy by the name of Paul Tudor Jones and he was one of the most famous Um, traders in our era, he'd made billions of dollars in one days of trading. And he had come out and said, I'm moving 1% of my family's portfolio into cryptocurrency. And the world went, whoa, you're a Wall Street guy. What are you doing moving your money into cryptocurrency? And I said, mate, if this guy's moving into cryptocurrency, so am I.
0: Eric's approach was a little different from what Paul Tudor Jones and other investors were doing. Eric put almost half his net worth into crypto. So whatever you might think about this decision, what it told me was that Eric is a risk taker.
1: And I gambled. I took a huge gamble because, you know, acting's a gamble, crypto's a gamble, so it's a part of my personality that's willing to take risks.
0: Well, we all know what happens next. Crypto crashes, investors lose their shirts, People get arrested, and companies collapse overnight.
1: Peter Switzer said, buying gloom, selling boom. And Warren Buffett said, when people are fearful, I get greedy. And when people are greedy, I get fearful. And I thought, it's time to buy. So I didn't have much money to buy with at that stage. But
0: Wait, your reaction when it went south was, I wanna, I'm going to buy more?
1: Yeah, because what goes down comes back up.
0: That was our producer, Max, asking Eric if he really put more of his money into crypto after it took a nosedive. And a lot of you are probably thinking the same thing. What exactly did Eric think he was doing? Shouldn't he have cut his losses and got out? Actually, this is a pretty common decision-making move. I have seen plenty of clients think this way. Once you've invested, well, anything really, time, money, energy, in a project or a relationship or a get-rich-quick scheme, it's very hard to call it quits. It's even got a name, the sunk cost fallacy. That is to say, even when it becomes clear that a project is failing, and even though we can't ever get that time, money, and energy back, we won't give up on an idea precisely because we've already put in all that stuff. Basically, we're thinking... I can't give up now. I've already invested so much, even if the outlook is bleak. Of course, Eric's still hoping that he can get that money back, that crypto will rebound, because the alternative isn't pretty. You know, if we take crypto out of the equation a little bit, or the possibility of a huge crypto payoff, if we take that out of the equation and we really look at the future starkly, like, okay. you have to make money, you're gonna get some kind of job or you're gonna work on your business. How do you feel looking into the future if if that's your option?
1: I feel like I'm getting back on the rat race wheel. And as you were talking about that, I felt my felt my face just go somber. And it's like I hate wearing a suit. And that means if I go back into the rat race, I'm gonna have to put on a collared shirt, like every other collared shirt in the room some sort of hard shoes, like every other hard shoe in the room, and put on a fake smile and that I'm really enjoying this job. And you can hear that sigh. I think that sigh is sort of my answer. I would hate it.
0: Move to Hollywood and spend every last penny he has trying to become an actor or stay in Australia. Hope that crypto regains value and get a day job. It's a tough call. Would you take the risk? Why does it seem like some people are more inclined to take risks than other people?
2: Well, gosh, okay, so how long do you have? <laughs> um, okay, so biology... There That's
0: Kate Suckel, a science writer and the author of The Art of Risk. For her book, she spent years trying to answer the big questions. Who takes huge risks? Why do some people love to skydive while that idea makes others want to hide under the covers? After I spoke with Eric, I talked to Kate about our appetite for risk and how it affects the way we make decisions. Eric showed that he was a risk taker. I mean, he got into crypto. But that's not something everyone would do. I wanted to understand more about how someone like him makes that choice. It turns out there are a lot of different factors at play.
2: If our friends are doing it, we're probably going to be doing it, too. There's our social networks. And that's especially true with like some of the biggest risk takers, which are teenagers. They really would probably jump off the Brooklyn Bridge if their friends did. There's
0: also our emotional state at the time we're making a decision.
2: Gosh, if we're stressed, if we're feeling emotional, that alters the way that we assess risks.
0: The more stress, the higher the chance we'll do something risky. And then there's that old cliche, doing something truly stupid in the name of love. That's mostly men, but still. Um. (laughs) Uh There is a biological component, though. In fact, it turns out there are genes for risk. One's called DRD4 to this
2: one that's called the warrior gene.
0: A warrior gene? I was thrilled to learn this. First of all, it sounds ridiculously cool. And second of all, it made me super curious about how that manifested itself in people.
2: You tend to be more likely to be sensation-seeking, impulsive. You may be more likely to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, also maybe be more likely to go to jail or, uh, you know, have substance
0: abuse issues, which of course are the bad risks that nobody wants to talk about. Kate says we can almost think of risk assessment like an algorithm in our brain. And that algorithm runs on a slightly different frequency for those who have the alleles and those who don't.
2: Ultimately, these slightly different algorithms, uh, you know, they're going to help define whether or not we take a risk. And uh, over the course of one decision, it's not that big a deal. But when that slightly different algorithm is applied to every decision you make every single day, over time, that's going to end up in very, very different lives lived, very, very different values.
0: Entranced as I was by the warrior gene, Kate says it's perfectly possible that someone with all of the gene variants associated with risk can still be very risk-averse. Think of people with a genetic predisposition towards certain health conditions who never develop them. And there's no biological basis for saying that men are naturally bigger risk-takers than women either, although cultural conditioning does affect behavior. Kate told me one of the biggest factors that show whether or not you'll take a risk is familiarity and familiarity preparation. People who are
2: extreme snowboarders or, you know, extreme athletes, they train and they practice all the time. They know when something isn't quite right and they can avoid issues or injury because they're so well-practiced.
0: So if our risk appetite isn't exactly hardwired, is there a way to get more adventurous, a tiny bit more likely to embrace uncertainty? Kate says yes. The brain is there to make predictions
2: about what's going to happen next in the world so that you can survive it and hopefully thrive. And the way that it can do better at that is when you get out there and you get out of your comfort zone, take a new way home from work, talking to different people, going and, you know, trying new activities. These little things can go a long way in helping to keep your brain agile and plastic and understanding sort of what the real potential outcomes can be for different decisions
0: and situations. I wanted Kate's expert perspective on Eric's situation. I explained how he has a history of taking risks, first with acting, then crypto. But now he's feeling some fear. Just with that general overview of the situation, what do you think you would do if you were in his shoes?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, when I was 25, I'd be on the first flight to L.A., But now that I'm in his age range, I definitely would have to think more about it. I think that probably half the people in Eric's life would tell him that he's nuts to go back. And then I think other people know how much this dream means to him and says most people don't get a second chance at it. You're, you know, ridiculous if you don't go. Um, And it really comes down to how much, you know, he's willing to risk to give it another try, knowing that, you know, he has very little
0: control over the outcome. So Kate, the risk expert, kind of punted on Eric's dilemma, and I still needed more info before I could make my own call. Lots of people, when making a decision about jobs or moving or leaving a relationship, tend to think of one choice as risky and the other as safe. But that's not always accurate. Sometimes the best way to get my clients out of indecision is to recalibrate their risk assessment a little bit. So I pushed Eric to think of the worst case scenario if he sold his crypto assets and moved to L.A. Was it that he'd end up friendless, alone, with not even enough money for a plane ticket home? How risky was it, really? If it came down to like, you really, you're out of luck, you're out of money. Do you have people that you can, can turn to that would help you out?
1: I can, but you, you've got to understand, I need to become self-sufficient and have financial security in my life where it's you need to stand on your own two feet and stop putting your hand out and asking for loans. I don't like that idea anymore.
0: It turns out that Eric has a safety net, even if he doesn't want to use it. So the actual risk isn't as dire as he'd imagined. Andy shared that he's currently single and doesn't have kids. Well, that's also significant. Here's another thing about big decisions. They ripple through nearly every part of your life. So when I'm helping someone choose a new job, I can't just consider the salary and the workload and the boss. I need to think about how it'll affect that person's free time, their spouse, their after-work pickleball game, their vacations, their stress levels, their health care. I take a 360-degree look at every part of a person's life and how the decision will affect each one. Eric is in a good situation when it comes to outside obligations. His parents are young enough to look after themselves, and his siblings are in a position to help if need be. He's single, with no kids, and no mortgage. It's hard to imagine a time in his life when he'll have fewer responsibilities than he has right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have got absolutely no obligations except for my own mind at the moment. The only thing I'm obliged to is the wrestle in my own mind of this decision and how much I need to bring more chutzpah into my life and step up to the plate and unleash the power within the outstanding level of rah, you know? <laughs> yeah, but some well, days I'm like, mm, really? Do you want to? And then it's like the next day, it's like, rah, yes, I must take the boat and burn the boat and take the freaking island, raw
0: So here's a key part of my process. When I'm coaching someone, I'm always listening for one thing. The thing they actually want to do. The raw, as Eric puts it. If I hear someone's speech speeding up when they talk about one of the options in front of them, or if they move their hands around more, or they start smiling, those are good signs. It works the other way, too. I keep an ear out for phrases like, I could, I should, maybe if I... Those are signs that a client is trying to talk themselves into something, which is almost always a terrible idea. So there are ways I can hear what a person actually wants to do. But I often have to help people get rid of the clutter so they can hear it for themselves. If we cleared all the other debris away, the money, the idea of assets, buying a house, retiring, looking after your parents, if you had all of those things taken care of, acting is what you want to do. Acting is like the thing, it's your thing, it's your passion, it's your craft.
1: I would love to be making a film and being the lead in that film and I want to delve and dip into other people's characters and morph and transform into a human being and tell some sort of awe-inspiring human story that you know, someone sitting in their seat at a cinema with a mask on and they find themselves tearing out of their left eye because I was able to give some great storytelling performance and the crowd goes, yeah, that's an Oscar-nominating film. That guy's great. Who's he? Oh, his name's Eric. Let's watch his next film. That would be like the $5 million dream.
0: And, And that's when I heard The Raw. Thank you. At this point, I've confirmed that acting isn't a past love for Eric, a fond memory of glory days. That passion is still alive. So it's time to get down to brass tacks and a little tough love. We could say that the relationship that you have had with acting is a long burning fire that maybe it's, at times it's brighter and at times it's, it's lower. But, you know, that's the one that has been consistent while your relationship with crypto and investment is like a new fire that can burn fast, but then burn out. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, the cryptocurrency fire burnt really fast. It was hot, and then it was really cold. And this acting one is, you know, I've got the acting chops. I've got the training. It's just a matter of getting the right representation and the right finances.
0: What amount of money, the bare minimum, that would make you feel comfortable going? How much is that amount? $30,000. That is a not inconsiderable amount of money. That's a big amount of money. But if we can zoom out a little bit and look at, you know, your lifetime, like over the course of a lifetime, that $30,000, it shrinks a little bit, right? It doesn't have the same amount of importance that it has now. It's a big amount of money, but it's not a, you know, it's not an impossible amount of money. Again. I'm trying to recalibrate Eric's risk assessment by diving into the details. Let's really look at that $30,000 and what it means. And when we think about $30,000 as like one big cost in a long lifetime, is it big enough to stop you from, you know, and I'm using your own words here, like keeping the dream alive?
1: Of course not. What's $30,000? That could come in a heartbeat for some. And it could be, you know, pennies for some and... Some job could overnight give me $30,000, or I could win the lottery. But, uh, you know, my heart's saying no, but my head's saying, maybe it's worth giving up the dream. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. You can really hear Eric struggling here. If you could help me clear the jungle so I could have a brighter view, oh, I welcome that now.
0: That's absolutely what, I'm, what I want to do right now. Here's a dirty little secret. The decision-making business is really the regret-minimization business. We're all trying to avoid regret when we make a decision. Trying to stave off that feeling of, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. We hate that feeling. So we mostly look for the decision that we think will produce the least amount of regret in the future if things go wrong. But I heard Eric talk about acting. And I heard him talk about pasting a smile on his face and going to work every day that he's not acting. And I reminded him that plan B, the job, the suit, the hard shoes, wasn't going away. That option will always be available to him. But plan A, trying to make it as an actor, that option had an expiration date. And I never want someone to go for plan B when their plan A is still a possibility for them. That's my strategy for minimizing regret.
1: Can I add something more? Sure. I want to help. And you can add some chips to it.
0: Then Eric told me something he hadn't mentioned before, about his first time in Hollywood.
1: My visa at the time in the States was what they call an O1B visa, an alien, and that's literally what they call it, an alien deemed with extraordinary ability in the field of arts or sciences. I had that visa, but that only allows you to be an actor in that country. So in the United States of America, for those two and a half years, I was only allowed to work as an actor, not look for any other jobs whatsoever. And it cost me over $100,000, plus loans from family. So if I'm accurate, it's probably $150,000. I spent all that, and I came back to Australia with the lockdowns. And I had next to my name about... $10,000. The question is, am I going to put all the chips on the table again? But this time I ain't got $150,000. I've got $10,000.
0: This sometimes happens in sessions. Even though Eric was openly sharing his story, he waited until nearly the bitter end to reveal the key detail. The fact that the last time he tried this, it cost him $150,000. That was holding him back in a big way. I didn't want to in any way downplay or make light of what had happened, but I wanted to help break down the fear with some basic truths. Look, there is risk in everything, right? There's risk that crypto will never recover. There's risk that you won't get acting work. Everything is risk. But let me ask you one direct question. Can you make money if you have to get a job can you get a job? You are not going to end up on the street and you're not going to end up in prison. Of you can have a job. Okay. So you can make money, but can you make another
1: visa? No. This is my other question. Can I make enough money to live in LA?
0: Well, we don't know the answer to that question. But from my perspective, I think that we should find out. <laughs> There's a point in every session when the decision becomes crystal clear to me. It's not magic. I've probed into all the details of my client's life. I've established their values. I've talked to them about what they want their future to look like. And I've really deeply listened so it all comes together. And the biggest reason for my decision here, that Eric should move to L.A., had a lot to do with something I already mentioned. I think the chances of you regretting turning down this green card and starting to live that so-called normal life, the way you described it with the white picket fence and the hard shoes and the wearing the suit, there is a much higher chance that you are going to regret turning down that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity than there is about, you know, selling your assets and giving it one big, final, huge, high-energy push in California.
1: You know, I agree with you. I know if I give up this green card, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. My question is, do I have the high energy push at age 46 when I go back? Will I hit the ball just as hard, if not harder? Or will I crawl into my tortoise shell as a defeated man that, to be honest, the last three years has, you know, I've crawled into that shell?
0: Oh, I can hear that. I can absolutely hear that. And you are really not alone in this. My, I have a lot of clients who are in the same boat, like – The hopes and the dreams and the energy that they had in 2019. Like it is not the same today. Eric was really wringing his hands here. So I kept encouraging him. But I believe that there is still that there's you still have the ability to hustle and to schmooze and to network and to audition and to get back to that level of excitement. And I am not a big like mindset person. But I do actually believe that like when we are in a different physical place, we feel we feel differently. And that if you're in L.A. and you're on Hollywood Boulevard and you're looking at the ocean on your days off and you're going to you know, you're going to meetings and you're going to auditions, that energy will come rushing back. You know, the energy of sitting in your apartment in Sydney, it's probably not going to change that much. I want to say here that regret is unavoidable. If you're stuck on a big decision, that's likely because you know that no matter which option you choose, you'll feel some regret over the loss of the other. This is totally normal. That's what makes a decision hard. What I want to point out, though, is that when we make decisions, we are more likely to regret making the smaller choice than we are making the bigger one. And the bigger choice, in Eric's case, is acting. Though You have two choices in front of you, right? and. One of those things you can, your actions will influence. So if you go to L.A. and you try this, the harder you work, of course, there are no guarantees of success, but the harder you work, the more likely good things will happen to you. And the other is passive. You know, it's waiting to see what happens with, with crypto and with investments. So you only have the opportunity to really influence one of these outcomes. And if I have two options before me, one of which is going to happen, I'd pick the one that I could actually effect, not the one that would happen to me.
1: Things that are inside the locus of my control versus things that are outside the locus of my control.
0: Yes, precisely. You've put in the time, you've done the training, you have made that investment in yourself and in your career that investment was really coming to fruition and the pandemic cut it off but the potential is still there like the the investment is still there and i think you owe it to yourself to give it a chance to let that investment flourish to let that investment become something
1: i agree i agree <sighs> <Yeah. laughs> Interesting hmm. moments ahead, interesting times. I might have to relinquish some assets is what you're saying, and I, I, I might need to say that to myself
0: I think you can put it to yourself that you might have to let some assets go temporarily in order to realize an investment that you have been that you have poured years of your life and hundreds of thousands of dollars into that you are going to let go of a small investment. Because you are taking care of a big investment, and you are waiting to see if it is going to pay off.
1: I've, I've watered the seed.
0: Right. <laughs> Let's see if the
1: plant grows.
0: Look, I can I can see your resume right now. He can do an American accent. He can do an Australian accent.
1: You know, if you want me to go over here with Mister Hemsworth, I can do that for you if you want. <laughs> but um, yeah, your insight has been really, really, really helpful. So thank you very much.
0: Most of my client sessions end with an energetic yes, but it was clear to me that Eric's crypto experience had done two things, drained his savings and made him more hesitant about taking big action. In many ways, his struggle to decide is pretty universal. It's terrifying to feel like you're looking a last chance in the face. And it's hard to reconcile yourself to a life that doesn't look the way you always hoped it would. But it was clear to me, and eventually to him, that L.A. was the right choice. I checked in with Eric a few weeks after our session. And guess what? He'd made the move. What I've learned from my clients is that if there's a dream that's been buzzing around in the back of your brain for a long time, the only way to stop the buzzing is to try it out. On the next episode of The Decision Coach, I coach a woman who is deciding whether or not to drop out of college. What is the universe trying to tell me? This, this is the third time this didn't happened. And every single time it seems like I'm bouncing back for school. It seems like school is just not working out. That's next.